0: From the ED ECMO studios in San Diego, California. This is the ED ECMO podcast. Okay, welcome everybody to the ED ECMO podcast. Uh, I'm Joe Belezzo.
1: And I'm Zach Shiner.
0: And we are here today with Dan McCollum. Dan, how are you doing?
1: Doing awesome. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: You're welcome. So glad to have you on the program. Listen, Dan is an assistant program residency director at Georgia Regents University, and he contacted us about an interesting case. And one of the cool things that we're trying to accomplish is highlight cases in the community that happen or at academic residency centers, um, but highlight cases that happen outside of our center, but happen in the ER. And I think the goal for that would be to uh, motivate people to realize that you can do ECMO in your ER. And then the goal for the podcast is to help everybody out there as much as possible, help you guys along with making that happen. So Dan contacted us about a case that's fascinating and a great ECMO case. And we wanted to talk to him about that. So Dan, tell us a little bit about the background of this case. Tell us what happened.
1: So sure. We, uh, got contacted through our ECC, uh, that a, ambulance air crew was actually bringing in a patient with an unknown downtime. So we knew that it was an overdose patient. The patient was quite sick because an air crew was bringing them in. So we had a 30-something-year-old Jane Doe that came in. She had some hypotension en route, but actually presented with good-looking vitals. She was normotensive on arrival, not tachycardic. Uh, Her husband had found her down with an unknown ingestion that was somewhere between 3 and 12 hours before getting to us. Um, so EMS arrived, um, in the emergency department about two hours after she was found down by her husband. Um, and then very shortly after she arrived in the ED, she rapidly deteriorated from her grossly normal blood pressure to becoming 55 over 33, um, by blood pressure and started desaturating. As well.
0: So so looking through your timeline, it looks like at about two o'clock in the morning, somewhere between two o'clock in the morning, uh, and five o'clock in the evening, a pretty wide, um, a pretty wide potential downtime or ingestion time she took this massive ingestion do you want to talk about what she took
1: so the medications that were found near her with all empty pill bottles were montelukast promethazine ciproheptadine clonazepam amitriptyline and amlodipine and we were particularly concerned about the amitriptyline and amlodipine medications, and that's what we focused our resuscitation on.
0: So no idea exactly what she took, but this was the p- list of possibilities.
1: Correct. And all of those bottles were found empty next to her with presumably a large number of each of those. Uh, several of the medications we were much less concerned with.
0: Okay, so she shows up in your ER at about uh, 1,900 hours with a reasonable blood pressure, you said, and reasonable vital, reasonable vital signs. And then what happened?
1: So she actually looked fairly good when she arrived. She was intubated by the air crew prior to getting here. And they told us that she was a little hypotensive briefly. Uh, and fortunately, we decided that we should go ahead and put in a central line on her, thinking that maybe she's going to get sicker. But she actually looked pretty good. Uh, the last few minutes of her transport and when she first got hooked up to monitors, she didn't look terrible other than being intubated.
0: And where'd you put that line?
1: Uh, so we were doing a right IJ. Okay. So... Within a half hour of her actually getting to the emergency department, her blood pressure basically halved down to 55 over 33, and she her FiO2 requirement went through the roof. So she didn't initially have much of an oxygen requirement, but then began setting 93% on 60% FiO2, which was a new finding.
0: Okay, so you're her. looking at this list of medications she took. You don't know how much she took, but in that long list, you got Montelucas, Promethazine, Ciproheptadine, Clonazepam, uh, Amlodipine, and um, Amitriptyline. And your concern here now is what?
1: So we, we were concerned that with this massive overdose that, that she was going to become hemodynamically unstable. So while the resident was putting in a line, uh, within 10 minutes of her arriving, she actually went into PEA arrest. So didn't have... Uh, Um, any pulse at all, we started doing standard ACLS-type things uh, with kind of a tox slant. So she ended up getting epinephrine and atropine uh, per boring ACLS-type guidelines. And then we added in a healthy amount of sodium bicarb and calcium as well. Uh, We didn't have even a blood sugar at this time because she'd just gotten in, so we gave her some Empiric uh, D50 as well. Narcan didn't do anything. And uh, once we got pulses back, uh, uh, which was... At 1954, so this is only 24 minutes after she got there, after about 13 minutes of coding her, we got bradycardia with the pulse um, that we could really only find through an art line that we threw in during our resuscitation. And where would
0: you throw that art line in?
1: I believe it was right radial, if if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't a fem line.
0: Okay, so it looks like you're concerned about cardiogenic shock and then the subsequent ARDS that can occur as a result and that your two big drugs are amlodipine and amitriptyline. Uh, and it looks like you're now in bradycardia with a palpable pulse, but uh, pretty crappy blood pressure, right?
1: Right. So the, the blood pressure is dropping. And then even more concerning in some ways was how much worse her respiratory exam got. Her lung sounds became very coarse. Uh, our first chest X-ray just looked horrible. She had fluorid ARDS. And her FIO2 uh, went up to 100%, and she was still deciding into the 80s despite this, um, when just a few minutes before, she had a pretty normal lung exam with clear lungs and, and no real hypoxia. On so the
0: flash pulmonary edema, and at the same time, you're still doing your ACLS stuff. It looks like you hit her with a bunch of bicarb and some epi, uh, and then began to move towards some of the talk stuff.
1: Right. And so we're just now figuring out some of the, the stuff from the empty medicine bottles and whatnot. So we start ordering a high-dose insulin drip with the bolus. Um, So we were starting with the initial one unit per kg. Uh, She was on epinephrine drips with, honestly, very healthy doses of push-dose epi as well. I kept pushing 0.02 over and over again without much response, to be honest. And uh, by 2022, she was sat 84% despite maxing out the vent settings. Okay, Um, so
0: you're then moving – what's your next move?
1: So then her bradycardia kept getting worse, and so – we we decided to try to pace her um, because it was obvious that her hypotension was getting very severe and her and her heart rate was drifting lower and lower we initially uh had some success with transcutaneous pacing um she was intubated and so we could we could really turn up the transcutaneous pacing fairly high without much trouble uh but that very quickly showed that it wasn't working very well and uh even at 200 milliamps uh we had poor capture within about a half hour of us doing transcutaneous pacing Um, Very curiously, we we threw on a bedside echo and saw that even though we were getting electrical capture um, with every beat through the the pacing, we were only actually getting a a good squeeze of the heart every other beat, which I've never heard of elsewhere. But you could watch it that the electrical rate was double what the actual heart was was beating.
0: So it was sort of an electromechanical dissociation, but in a bigeminal pattern.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bigeminal PEA. I
0: love it. All right, very good. So, you know, in my in my experience, I've never found transcutaneous pacing to be of much help, and I see that you've already got a right IJN. Did you ever think about at that point just dropping a TV pacer in?
1: Right, and so that was at the same time that that was going on, we were we were getting ready to float a uh, a uh, pacing wire through that that IJ. Um, at the same time, we, uh, I hardly ever give charcoal. I think this may be the only patient I've given charcoal to in the last three years, but we just said, why not? Let's, let's give it through, a, through an NG2, uh, titrated up a norepidrip, um, the chest x-ray is coming back looking terrible, and uh, we started the patient on bivent as well while we were trying to, to flip this pacer.
0: Hey, I'd like to get to that, but real quick on the charcoal side, just for the tox side of things. You know, if this ingestion was two hours to 15 hours or the numbers that she had quoted prior to arrival, most folks would say, well, charcoal is not going to be of benefit. But what would be your thought process in giving the charcoal in that case?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, the main thinking was we had such a wide range of what it could have been. It could have been as short as a couple hours ago. Mm-hmm. And the, the ciproheptadine in particular may have slowed GI motility. So the thought was she already has a protected airway. We were less worried about aspiration. Um, so if it even took 10% of the drug out of the equation, that might be great, but she she may have decreased GI motility. So we, we didn't feel like we had much to lose.
0: Sure. And did you, did you do that on your own or through, did you get a consultation with a regional uh, poison center?
1: So one of those uh, hindsight's twenty twenty kind of things, I didn't realize despite having her for several hours in the ED that uh, we never actually called poison control, which is funny because I often teach my residents, hey, you should probably call them just for charting and and so they can track the numbers, and she was down there for a few hours, the sickest talk patient in my life, and uh, it totally slipped my mind to ever actually call Poison Control.
0: Well, it sounds is... like your hands were a little full, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to fault you for that.
1: Yeah. It was pretty funny, though, because we heard later that a toxicologist was, was increasing the insulin drips and things like that. It was kind of a funny moment of, oh, yeah, we, we should have probably called. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you, you guys hit her with a bunch of bicarb, a bunch of epi, high-dose insulin, and still bradycardic. You tried transcutaneous pacing. That didn't work. You went to TV patient tra- transvenous pacing, and next you're addressing her ventilatory status. And tell us a little about bivent.
1: So we were looking at the maxed-out uh, vent settings, and I don't have those right in front of me, but sure. I believe she was under PRVC with with very healthy bo- uh, volumes and large peeps. Unfortunately, we we felt like we were a little bit limited with how much PEEP we could give her based on her profound hypotension. Um but even with aggressive PEEPs and, and 100% FIO2, she kept deciding. So we called for Bivent. Uh the um oscillator wasn't actually an option and at the time we, we actually con- uh, consulted Mickey to come down and see if there were other exotic things. Uh with all the resuscitations sure. that we were doing, it certainly didn't seem like a good time to prone her or anything else like that. So, so we tried bivent with, uh, honestly, uh, no no improvement.
0: Okay. We're not going to get too much into the patho, or I should say the physiology of bivent. We can do that at a later time. Uh, but needless to say, the bivent didn't really work. And it looks like next you went to intralipids. Talk intralipids.
1: So sure. We, we saw that there was the possibility that she might get better with intralipid. Um, it was unclear with this poly overdose, whether that would help or not. But the sick heart, uh, again, thought we had very little to lose. So we started bolusing intralipid, um, and she got several boluses of that. Um, when she was bolused with intralipid, we would actually notice a transient increase through her ART line. Uh, I know that you guys have spoken to, to how much an arterial line really helps guide resuscitations. And I honestly could not imagine running this code without an ART line to show me whenever I gave something if it helped. Sure. And so we pushed intralipid. The blood pressure would come up 20 points for a little bit, so we pushed more intralipid. It, it really was as simple as that. Uh, and the same thing with bicarbonate calcium. We used huge amounts of bicarbonate calcium, largely because every time we would give it, we would notice a transient improvement, and then it would kind of come back to terrible hypotension again.
0: Yeah, I've seen that as well in, in some massive overdoses, that exact physiologic effect. Okay, so next, uh, intralipid you're giving, and you move on to some glucagon.
1: Yeah, why not? We're, we're going to yeah, try it. We're just doing, sure. <laughs> we're throwing the kitchen sink at it. So we tried glucagon to see if that uh, might have partial effect. It, it really didn't do anything.
0: And so where are you at there? You're at about 21, 21 hours, and you're still in cardiogenic shock with really crappy SATs.
1: Right. So now now our systolic blood pressure is in the 40s. Uh, honestly, can't feel a pulse, but we have a very good arterial waveform. So technically in PEA, because there's no pulse, but perfusing a little bit, uh, very shocky extremities, SATs are 69% with a pulse of 70, which I still kind of treated as a bradycardia because with their profound shock, this was a, a young, otherwise healthy woman that should have had a much high, a higher heart rate. So uh, we continued to resuscitate. We ordered blood with the massive transfusion protocol saying, I'm not sure what's going on here. Was there something else? Because she was found down, but there was no evidence of trauma. Um, but we figured that might help volume resuscitate her some.
0: So how much, and, how much blood did you give her?
1: I think we only put in one unit um, initially, um, just as a a volume resuscitation as much as anything. We didn't have any labs at this point.
0: Sure. And the thought process there was possibly trauma, not sure.
1: Correct. Mm -hmm. She was found down. No one actually seen what happened. It didn't appear to be traumatic, uh, but we were kind of worried with all this other stuff going on. Is that not a a reasonable idea as a volume expander? In hindsight, I, I don't know if I would have necessarily ordered that again.
0: Okay. So you've got a sick as shit patient. Who has uh, basically cardiogenic shock, blood pressure in the 40s, Sats in the 70s, maximizing everything, including BiVent, and you've given everything in the kitchen, including the kitchen sink, in terms of tox uh, antidotes, and now your back is against the wall. So, tell us what happened next.
1: So she had another asystolic arrest with just a, a bare flicker on the uh, ultrasound of her heart, just a you know a tiny like two percent squeeze kind of kind of deal with. Uh, um, but this was an asystolic arrest as opposed to the prior PEA. Um, much earlier in this case, around the time that, that the event settings were being maxed, we'd actually put out a call to the CT surgeon uh, who thankfully arrived. We, we didn't actually have a protocol for the ED folks to put in line. We're working on building that now. But at this point, the only person that could actually put in these lines was the CT surgeon.
0: Referring to so, the ECMO lines.
1: Correct, correct.
0: Okay. So you guys saw ECMO at this point. You're thinking you got nothing left. You've thrown everything at her, and now if you're going to save this lady, you've got to get her on bypass.
1: Absolutely. And much to his credit, middle of the night, uh, I forget what day of the week it was, but it was not convenient, CT surgeon comes in and puts in the lines. We'd actually asked about, do you, do you want us to throw in some FEM lines to, to make this easier for you when you get here? And, and he wanted to, to put in the initial lines himself. I was just so thankful that he was coming in to begin with, that I was like, that's, that's fine. So we just continued uh, pacing through the right IJ.
0: Hats off to your CT surgeon, there. It's not easy to get them to come in in the middle of the night, which is actually one of the reasons that we have taken this upon ourselves to do these things in the ER by ER docs, because it's not always the case out there where people have CT surgeons that are willing to come in in uh, a patient who you run these numbers by them and you tell them that she is in asystole arrest, you're not going to get a CT surgeon to come in and take care of that. So hats off to this guy for coming in and doing
1: that. Absolutely. Without without him, this lady is 100% going to die in the ER.
2: Dan, I, I wasn't quite clear to me. When along this timeline did you call the CT surgeon?
1: Uh, it was fairly early, uh, maybe within the first half hour or so of, mm. of her arriving. At this it's point, her- we were two and a half hours or so in. Um, but at first, it, it sounded like she was going to die much quicker. And so there, there were multiple phone calls.
2: And so, And then what kind of spurred you on? I mean, would you have made that call? I know you were early out of residency, but where... Where were you at in that thinking as far as your program and saying this is a possibility even for us? Well, uh, funny enough,
1: uh, the uh, newest podcast that I'd started listening to was actually ED mo podcast. And I'd literally listened to uh, the uh, uh, ECPR, one of the first ones that you guys did. I think I was maybe four episodes in at this point. Hmm. And uh, I'd remembered you guys talking about it. So I was like, well, I, I've got nothing else that's going to work. It did not seem like dialysis was even remotely a possibility of, of fixing this at all. I, I didn't think that she'd live long enough to do anything other than put her on ECMO. So that that literally is the the, the only reason I even thought to to call it.
2: But then, had, did you know that you had a machine? Did you know that? Like, what, what was your understanding of what your hospital was capable of at that time?
1: So uh, that's a great question. I knew from CT surgery that they were uh, capable of putting people on bypass in the um, OR. We also have a very excellent PICU program here at, at GRU. And so I knew that they had a lot of experience putting kids on pump. Um, so ironically, the first transfusionists that got there were actually in-house pediatric perfusionists that responded right away to help get the machine up and running while the CT surgeon was on route.
0: So where is, this, where is your machine housed?
1: I think it came from the... OR, but it's actually kind of complex because I think they made a pediatric machine work with a lower flow rate initially. On this
2: lady? Oh, well, that's fascinating. So I I think this is just sort of a good take-home point here is that so often we see places where people don't even understand that they have like the ability at 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever this was to call somebody in and you just took the initiative and made it happen.
0: Now, do you know, did you call somebody to try and get the machine there, or did you call the CT surgeon and he or she called to get the machine down?
1: If I recall, I think the CT surgeon called them, and I think word got through the perfusionist staff that, hey, you guys actually have uh, in-house folks on the peed side who responded quickly to get it rolling before turning it over to the adult perfusionists who came in later. Okay. But we would have been absolutely sunk. Uh, Everything kind of worked out well. Uh, but we would have been sunk if uh, we had to rely on someone else to come in from home and prime the pump and so forth. It was a very unique situation that allowed this to work at all.
0: Okay. And y- so you're now in your ER. It's, uh, it's, it's nighttime and your CT surgeon shows up and the machine shows up. Uh, to Kind of walk us through what happened there.
1: So we continued to do medical resuscitation while he throws in the lines uh, quite quickly. Um, we had a slight pulse, and, and so I think that that helped some that, that we were actually slowly improving the, uh, the, uh, the blood pressure. Um, but the blood pressure was still really, really low. It was in was the, in the 50s, I think, at this point. So lines were being um,
0: thrown in during CPR or intermittently during CPR?
1: Right after. I, I believe that he put the lines in just a couple of minutes after we got pulses again after the asystolic arrest.
0: And are you guys that doing happened. human chest compressions or are these mechanical chest compression devices?
1: We did uh, human chest compressions. Um, we like using Lucas devices and whatnot when we can. Uh, but since this patient arrived relatively stable, there wasn't a device like that on them.
0: All right. So he throws in lines. Do you remember which? Did he throw them both on the right side? One on the right, one on the left. Do you remember that? Those details?
1: Uh, I believe it was both right sided. Um, I, I remember this. The, the The patient was very, very poorly perfused distally. Like all of her uh, fingers and toes were, were very, very dusky throughout and cold. Um, and so I remember him placing the the lines on that side. Um, and later on in her hospital course, she actually has uh, poor perfusion to that and ends up eventually having to have a a partial leg amputation on that side.
0: Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but let's kind of finish up what's happening here. So this patient then gets put on pump. Do you know any of the details, flow rates or any of those things?
1: Sorry, it wasn't it, on any of the records I could pull on my side. That's fine.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. Okay, so then where does the patient go after that? Goes to the ICU, I guess?
1: Correct. So so there's actually a long discussion about this. And the, the CT surgeon actually had a lot of possession of this patient, much to his credit, and wanted him, uh, wanted the patient rather to uh, to be on his service. And so just a few minutes after beginning ECMO in the emergency department, immediately seeing her blood pressure improve and seeing her perfusion almost instantly improve, uh, she was transferred to the ICU after spending three hours and twenty minutes total in the emergency department.
0: Wow! So three hours and twenty minutes from arrival to ECMO.
1: Uh, almost. It was just over three hours to get her on pump, and then three hours and twenty when she went upstairs. But she was only on pump for seven minutes downstairs. In total,
2: no flow time in the ER. How much time did she not? Did she get chest? Comp- or I'm sorry. How much time was she low flow with only chest compressions?
1: So the low flow would be almost exactly three hours because within a half hour of her getting there, um, she was um, without consistently palpable pulses the whole time. So it was almost exactly three hours of I can't feel a pulse in this lady.
0: Three hours of maps so low you can't feel a pulse. Gets if it wasn't for ECMO the art disorders. line,
1: I would have done chest compressions the entire time if I didn't have you know another way of telling.
0: Okay, and then when you when when the CT surgeon first got. Her on pump. What what did you see? Did she pink up? Did she her blood pressure started to come back? Did she was she moving? Was there anything at all all going on? or Was she comatose?
1: Uh, She had a GCS of three the entire time. Didn't have any purposeful movements at all. um, Wasn't over breathing the vent at all. Um, I'll be honest. I was a little skeptical until they they turned on the ECMO pump and I saw almost immediately see that perfusion return and then see what this this lady was supposed to look like with a decent blood pressure.
0: Wow. Okay. Great. Did you guys cool her?
1: Uh, there was actually discussion uh, about that, but they decided not to because of all the complexity with other stuff.
0: Okay, so it looks like total amounts of drugs giving during resuscitation, calcium gluconate, 21 amps, sodium bicarb, 19 amps, epinephrine. I'm looking at your list here, 9.5 milligrams plus drips, and then insulin over 150 units. That is everything you have in the hospital, isn't it, Dan? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we, uh, we started raiding other parts of the emergency department. We uh, cleared out the PED side, took out the other side. I think they pulled some meds from the ICUs. I, I was worried the rest of my shift that night that if another <laughs> tox patient came in, we- we'd have to like, say, oh, we don't have any bicarb in the hospital. Like, it was a little, a little scary. Terry.
0: Okay, so the patient goes to the ICU. Give us a general perspective of what happens over the next several days, weeks. What, what happened to her?
1: So um, at first, she-, she remained completely unresponsive. The ICU folks did an absolutely fantastic job taking care of her. Uh, she goes on dialysis. Um, they end up uh, going up a great deal on her drips. And then she starts improving after a few days to where she she starts perfusing on her own, had to be uh, ventilated um, mechanically for, for a couple weeks or so, um, but was able to be weaned off the pump within within a few days, um, but remained incredibly hypotensive and had quite a few uh, complexities to her hospital state because of that. Um, so Go ahead.
0: So, no, a question that comes up a lot is whether or not you can dialyze on pump. And this is a classic tox case that is dial- potentially dialyzable intoxication. And it looks like you guys did uh, either in circuit or extra circuit dialysis. Do you ha- happen to know whether or not your dialysis pump was put in circuit with the with the ECMO can- the ECMO cis, uh, circuit, or whether or not you used a separate uh,
1: hemodialysis? I believe it was in circuit.
0: Okay, and so uh what happened next? We're now uh several days out she comes off pump she 's on mechanical ventilation for how long?
1: I believe it was a week or two hmm.
0: and uh and then she had a as it sort of can be expected a series of complications which aren 't related specifically to ECMO but related to the severity of her overdose and disease process, and the fact that she was essentially dead for three hours. So um, you want to just quickly run down the list of things that she had that went wrong that you guys ultimately ended up fixing?
1: Uh, Sure. So she ended up getting some mesenteric ischemia. She had a massive lactic acidosis uh, initially. So ended up having to have some abdominal surgeries, Um, ended up um, having a partial leg amputation because of low flow. Um, I don't think that that was necessarily just because of the catheters, but because she was so profoundly uh, hypotensive for so long. Um, so, ended up having multiple surgeries related to that, and addressing any sort of infectious concerns. But as the weeks went on, she steadily improved mentally. Um, was cognitively cognitively aware very soon. It was within a few days or so of her going to the ICU that that she started responding neurologically and moving around. Um, it did not take long at all. With, with okay. initial GCS of three when she arrived to us.
0: Yeah and you know to your point about the leg ischemia there is a concern for folks who are relatively new to the podcast or new to ECMO that uh, the the having both lines in the right leg would potentially create some um some perfusion problems on the in- ipsilateral leg and the recommendation is typically to place a what's called a backflow cannula or a antegrade perfusion cannula which it sounds like you guys did
1: We did the CT surgeon placed one uh, later in an attempt to improve perfusion. Um, but I think it just kind of speaks to how sick she was more so than, than any problem with what CT surgery did. Wow,
0: okay, and what, Dan, what's her final outcome? What happened to her?
1: So she was, I believe, about two months after this uh, initial presentation, uh, discharged fully neurologically intact um, so to, to a rehab facility from the hospital. That's and awesome. uh, when I last checked on her chart, seemed to be doing quite well neurologically.
0: So, you know, it sounds like, first of all, you just thinking of all of the steps along the way of how to manage a sick tox patient and then and then having your back against the wall and then even thinking of the possibility of putting a patient like this on heart-lung bypass and then additionally having this, a CT surgeon who is proactive and willing to own this patient come in with a basically an asystole patient or an inter, intermediate pulse patient who. You know, came in and took took care of this patient. It's this is just kind of an unusual situation. It sounds like you have a really amazing team out there.
1: Oh no, the the nursing staff. Just you you look at the number of medications that the patient received. Uh, it's absolutely astounding that they were able to do all that they did while this was all going on. The the residents. This was very fortunate. We had some awesome third year residents that were doing a lot of the therapies. That I just say, oh, we we put it in an IJ. And by we, I mean. The resident was doing that while i was running the code it, it was very much a, a team effort
0: okay so you know dan you, you, you i looked at your slide set uh you'd given a presentation on this case recently and you're a pretty humble guy and you went through a number of things that you thought maybe have been could have been handled better or maybe handled differently you talked about maybe hitting a rush exam early to identify a, a source of shock and hypotension Talked about maybe hitting ARDS a little bit earlier, uh, ca- calling poison control, and you also listed ECMO as as a as a potential uh, improvement point. But man, it sounds like you thought of this within a half hour, and your surgeon was in within three hours on pump. I don't think you could do much better than that. Anything you want to add to the overall thought process of this case?
1: I I think that it's really just that preparation to actually make the call to do it. Much like many people talk about the hardest part of doing a crike is the decision to put blade to flesh. I think the hardest part here was saying, look, this lady's gonna die if we don't do something different. The the vents not working, our maximal medications are not working. If we don't do this, then then this is a dead patient. And and that initially took some resistance um, because we didn't have that protocol when we started. Now we're as a hospital building that protocol to not have to build this from scratch the next time a patient like this comes in the door, um, much to the credit of others. But, but really that decision to just go ahead and do it, to jump in the pool and, and just give it a try uh, was in many ways the hardest part. And everything else kind of flows from that. Once you've made that decision, it's kind of a relief that, oh, well I'm just going to code this patient as hard as I can until we put her on pump, which I wish I had the skills to put her on pump by myself. And that's what we're working on uh, making a system to do that. But that's really the, the main thing is just making that decision and, and jumping in to do it.
2: All right, Joe, lots of stuff. What an amazing case. Let's uh, wrap this up. What do you got?
0: Okay, so first of all, a uh, patient arrives to your ED in undifferentiated shock that may or may not have suffered a polysubstance overdose. I think first we're dealing with undifferentiated shock. And in this case, we're going to give a kudos to the Weingart Rush Exam. And this is the one that I use. High map, H-I-M-A-P. First, heart. Take a look at the heart. In this case, we probably would have seen global hypokinesis uh, with no pericardial tamponade. And remember that there was a concern raised that Dan had raised that there may have been a trauma component to this, and that would have ruled out at least a heart-related trauma. Number two, high map, the I, the IVC. We looked at the IVC in this case. I think we probably would have seen a stout IVC. Uh, next, Morrison's pouch. You are gonna look for blood or fluid in the abdomen, and I don't think you'd see any here, right? So that would have ruled out the trauma component at least within the abdomen as a cause of shock. Next, aorta. Aorta would have been normal, and lastly, pneumothorax. No pneumothorax here. So in this case, the rush exam would have secured your suspicion that this was a polysubstance overdose and not something different.
2: Take an extra second on that cardiac exam. Remember, just think about it. What is actually going on in the heart? Try and get a pretty good view if you can because that's where a lot of the money is. Great, and uh, th-
0: remember next, think of ECMO early and often. And what does that mean? Of course, we're ECMO enthusiasts, uh, but the and if, if ECMO is gonna be the final common pathway of somebody who's sick as shit, then you're probably gonna need an arterial line and a venous line, and where are we going with that?
2: So, Artline, this is the perfect case, right? Oh, man. So, this guy gets pseudo-PEA. They diagnose this. They don't do chest compressions. They instead do push-dose pressors. She survives after three hours of low flow. So, that is... I mean, that's pretty profound. The idea that we should be moving more towards the presser route when somebody has a low blood pressure. At what pressure do we start chest compressions? It's still controversial. Decision making as far as which presser to use. Joe, he used push dose epi. What do you think?
0: I would have used push, push dose epi as well in a patient who did not yet have a central line. Once they get a central line, then you have lots of options. If your belief is that this is a calcium channel blocker overdose and add on a little amitriptyline then at least think think about isoproteranol as a pure beta agonist
2: and then so in some of these cases where you like push dose phenylephrine maybe not the best choice on this guy because of the calcium channel blockage
0: until they get on bypass once you've taken the heart and lungs out of the picture you no longer need the beta agonism and if they're still in shock that's your time to start thinking about phenyl
2: A lot of tox stuff here, Joe. What about these drugs? Yeah, so a lot of drugs potentially
0: taken here. And let's just run that list real quick. Montelucas, Singulair, leukotriene receptor antagonist, mild tox profile. Probably not going to be a cause of this patient's arrest or um, hypotension. Next, promethazine and ciproheptadine. Both are going to have a little bit of anticholinergic properties, both of which can cause some uh, cardiogenic issues. May have helped or at least promoted some of these uh, symptoms the patient had, but very unlikely. Next, clonazepam. Respiratory depression, maybe a little bit of cardiac depression, but probably not a major player here. The two big ones, amitriptyline, and amlodipine. Let's talk amlodipine first. Calcium channel blocker overdoses. We see these on occasion. We rarely see them as massive overdoses, but we do see them. If a patient comes in and they have a calcium channel blocker overdose and they're already hypotensive, I am already thinking about the possibility of ECMO. These patients don't do well. But until you get to that point, you've got a number of options. IV fluids, high-dose calcium. It's going to act as an inotrope. Pressors. Glucagon, atropine, and high dose insulin. All of those throw the kitchen sink at them if they're hypotensive, but final common path massive calcium channel blocker overdose, probably going to need some bypass. Bypass, baby. Next, amitriptyline. Don't see much of this anymore. Tricyclic antidepressant overdose. Uh, you know, we still have some pain patients who are on am- amitriptyline, and we still have some old psychiatrists out there who are treating patients with amitriptyline for their depression and we still see an occasional overdose. If we do, remember, sodium bicarb, high dose sodium bicarb. It's going to be your main uh, agent of choice and then crystalloids and pressors. and again, polysubstance overdose in this situation. I can't help, man. ECMO, early and often. Wrapping up, a great tox case, great episode discussing ECMO as well as tox and all the little nuances of excellent resuscitation thanks to Dan McCollum from the Georgia Regents University on behalf of Zach Shiner this is Joe Belezzo for the EDECMA podcast saying
2: Bye-bye. bye bye bye